So I like everybody. No, wait, that's not quite right. It sounds good, though, doesn't it? This might be closer. I love everybody. Or actually, closest of all, I strive to love everybody. I hope to love everybody. I totally fail at, but still for some crazy reason try to love everybody. I think that last sentence is the best one. I totally fail at, but still for some crazy reason try to love everybody. Except that perhaps my reason isn't crazy at all, or anyway, it's no more crazy than anyone else's. I try to love everybody because that's what my religion tells me to do. As many of you know, I was raised in and ordained in the Unitarian Universalist tradition, and after being called to serve this congregation, became certified as clergy within the ethical culture tradition, too. So I have a foot in both religious traditions, and I enjoy and honor the differences between the two. But one reason that I feel I can have a foot in both traditions is that both of them hold as really their highest value this simple hope to love everybody. Except, of course, that neither of them actually says that. Ethical culture and Unitarian Universalism both have a strong intellectual identity, and so they couldn't possibly say anything so simple as, love everybody. Instead, they talk about the worth each person has, or sometimes the inherent worth. So first, I'd like to do a tiny bit of teaching about how each movement got to that idea of honoring every person's worth. Or really how they started with that idea, because for both Unitarian Universalism, which was really originally Unitarianism and Universalism, two different movements, and for ethical culture, the idea of a human's inherent worth was actually the founding concept for the religious tradition. We'll start with the earliest in history, Universalism. American Universalism appeared on the scene in the late 1700s and is often traced to a man named Hosea Ballou, which incidentally is such a great name. I think he had sort of a responsibility to be a preacher of some kind. So this well-named Hosea Ballou was a self-educated man from Baptist stock who decided pretty much on his own that instead of being a Baptist, he was going to be a Universalist, which basically meant that he thought God loved the world so much and loved all people so much that God couldn't possibly divide people up into good and bad, into those destined for heaven and those destined for hell. Instead, Ballou thought, there would be universal salvation, which is where the name universalism comes from. Now, over the years, the message of universalism grew and changed, as any message does, and now most Unitarian Universalists would say that the universalist message is that we are all loved, that we are all worthy, without so much or even any emphasis on the next world part of it. And actually, plenty of liberal Christian groups have become universalists themselves, too. If you follow national religious news, you know that a couple of evangelical preachers have recently become universalists. Rob Bell is one that's gotten a lot of press, and been actually denounced by their colleagues or thrown out of their churches. But just like Hosea Ballou in the late 1700s, they believe so strongly 
that we are all loved, that they've risked these huge professional and personal losses to share that message. So there at the start of universalism is that message of being worthy, that every person is worthy, every single one, which was incredibly radical at the time. Just a little bit later, in the, late, in the early 1800s, we have the beginning of American Unitarianism, which officially started not so far from here in Baltimore with what's called the Baltimore Sermon. In that sermon, William Ellery Channing, who's seen as the father of Unitarianism, accepted and reclaimed that term, Unitarian, to describe what he was, a term that had really been an insult until then because it described what the orthodoxy saw as a heresy, that God was a unity, not a trinity. Channing, in that sermon, said, yes, fine, I'm a Unitarian, and that does mean I don't believe in the trinity, which he felt was extra-biblical or not in the Bible. But he went further, and this is the part we're interested in today, and talked about what else it meant for him to claim the title Unitarian. Because in some ways, the even bigger heresy of early Unitarianism was the rejection of the doctrine of original sin, and instead the belief that people were born with the capacity for good. The way Channing said it was that each person had the capacity to grow in likeness to God. Contrast that with the Calvinist doctrine of the times, a doctrine that still continues in many religious traditions, that said that people were inherently sinful, evil, warped, fallen, depraved. You can see what an amazing thing it was for Channing and other Unitarians to say in the early 1800s that no, humanity actually had the capacity for goodness. Humanity was not inherently sinful, but inherently worthy. And that idea has stuck through the growth of Unitarianism in America, changing for many Unitarian Universalists from growing in likeness to God to growing in our own capacity for love or growing in goodness. But that vital piece of inherent worth is there. And the same is true for ethical culture. Some of us know the ethical culture story a little bit better, how in 1876, Felix Adler, a brilliant 24-year-old who had studied to be a rabbi but found that path not quite right, who had learned about world religions while in graduate school in Europe, and who had, most importantly for us right now, studied under disciples of Kant, how this young man decided to found a new religious movement, one based on the idea that we could believe differently from each other but still act together. But this new movement, which welcomed people of all beliefs, did have a core value that it has retained. You guessed it, the inherent worth of every person. For Adler, this idea came from his study of Immanuel Kant, a German philosopher who taught, among other things, that people were never a means to an end, but always an end unto themselves. You couldn't use people, Kant said, because they weren't just things. They were people. They had worth simply because of that. Felix Adler picked up on that idea, one that spoke to him as he looked around the New York City of his time, in the midst of the Industrial Revolution, when people were being used as means, when they were being used as cogs in a machine, crammed into tenement houses, ignored and trampled on, set to work at six and eight years old when it didn't seem at all clear that people had worth. So Adler took that idea of Kant's and made it more than philosophical. He made it religious. He spoke about inherent worth in terms that are not only compelling, they are beautiful. 
the conception of worth, he wrote, that each person is an end per se is not a mere abstraction. Our interest in it is not merely academic. Every outcry against the oppression of some people by other people or against what is morally hideous is the affirmation of the principle that a human being as such is not to be violated. A human being is not to be handled as a tool, but is to be respected and revered. That is from An Ethical Philosophy of Life, one of Adler's later works. Adler believed that our worth as an individual was found in our existence as part of the ethical manifold, a kind of web of all the lives, all the people in the world, each person an ethical unit, each person able to live up to his or her most full potential as part of that web. So even when we don't see that a person is particularly worthy, even when they don't seem worthy to us at all, we know they are. We make them worthy by affirming that they are worthy. And ethical culture continues with that idea today, the idea that each person has worth, that we ascribe it to them whether we see it there or not. Adler wrote, as I said, really beautifully about worth, about how he ascribed it to people, about this lovely concept of the ethical manifold and our place in it. His writing is heartfelt and compelling and rather difficult to wade through, since it was written by an extremely well-educated, particularly verbose, philosophically-minded gentleman of the 19th century. And here we are in the 21st century, and more often than not, we find that an ethical manifold sounds like something that might be located under your car's hood, and that inherent worth is possibly an ingredient in a Whole Foods-type product, gluten-free and inherent worth, too. In other words, we need some other words. I actually like dignity a lot, seeing the dignity in each person. And I think it's an easier idea to grab onto. I loved the illustrations that went with our children's story this morning. The way you could see the dignity of the goat lady in the portraits painted of her. I also like the idea of mattering a word that comes in this context from the world of NVC, or nonviolent communication, which is really communication for anyone who wants to speak in such a way that honors both themselves and the other person. The idea of mattering is related to that aim. It says that everyone's needs matter, that we want to act in such a way that we acknowledge and honor another's needs, even when they're different from or seemingly in conflict with our own. NVC teaches specific ways to talk and to listen so that we can hear our deepest needs and find solutions that honor multiple needs, since each one matters. But I've actually had another interaction with the word mattering that was, for me, an even more powerful one. A number of years ago, I participated in an anti-racism training, my first formal training of that kind. There were plenty of good parts of the weekend-long training, but what stands out most to me is an exercise we did at the very beginning called mattering and marginalization. We started by writing down all the ways that we felt we mattered, how we had been taught that we mattered by our parents or by our friends, and then sketched out a particular instance of really feeling as though we mattered. 
I don't remember what instance I chose, but doubtless it was some example of being able to change a system or have a wish fulfilled by hard work and by people listening to me and respecting my opinion, a time I mattered. Then we wrote about the ways that we felt marginalized, either because of messages we heard in childhood or adulthood, or because of identities we carried that pushed us into a doesn't-matter-as-much category, a category where our needs could be ignored by society. As a financially privileged, formally educated, physically and mentally abled white woman, I didn't have a lot of those identities to list. But when we moved on to the next part of the exercise, describing a specific experience of marginalization, I suddenly got it. I wrote about my experience in the hospital after major surgery, which had happened just a few months before I participated in the training. Many of you will have had, I imagine, a similar experience or have seen a friend or family member in this situation. When I was in the hospital, groggy and in a great deal of pain, wearing my little hospital gown which couldn't tie in the back because my arm was bandaged and slung in such a way that you couldn't fit the gown on me, all my clothes in a plastic bag with my room number written in a sharpie across the front. When I was the patient in 106B, none of my formal education and financial privilege made any difference. I wasn't physically able anymore, and the combination of the drugs and the stress of anesthesia had taken away much of my mental ability, too. I was totally dependent on the nurses and the nurses' aides who checked on me. And suddenly, the way they checked on me, the way they treated me, became intensely important. I only mattered in that moment to the extent they thought I did. Unfortunately, they didn't all think I did matter, or at least I didn't experience it that way. I remember needing more pain medication or a drink of water or to find out if my husband could stay the night with me, and I couldn't get a single person to answer my question. I would ring the buzzer and call out as they passed by, but I wasn't next on the list or the top priority, and so no one came. And in my frustration, in my dependence and my fogginess, and my sense really of not mattering at all, I got angry and then sad, and then just cried until someone finally came by to ask me what it was I needed. A whole world of not mattering in a 24-hour hospital stay. Of course, I was really lucky. It was just a 24-hour stay. And then I went home where I was still in pain and foggy, but the people taking care of me were my husband and my parents, to whom I mattered a great deal. But just having the experience and then reflecting on it in the training later was so instructive to me. Suddenly I got it, the way that not mattering feels, the way not mattering over a lifetime and across society might feel, and the way it might make someone respond with anger and sadness. That little exercise of remembering the feeling and the result of not mattering was, for this privileged white woman, an incredibly helpful way to enter into a conversation that weekend about race and racism, about oppression, about the marginalization that our society imposes on whole groups of people, and not just for 24 hours. And I think that's one of the ways that this whole inherent worth thing, this whole mattering thing, really makes a difference on the ground in the practice of our religious lives, 
It's how the beautiful ideas that the founders of universalism and Unitarianism and ethical culture had in the 18th and 19th centuries plays out in our world here in the 21st century. Most of us in liberal religious traditions no longer see it as overwhelmingly radical to say that people are born without original sin or that a whole bunch of us aren't going to be damned to hell for all eternity. Those concepts may not even make any sense to us, so saying we don't believe in them isn't exactly powerful. Instead, I would argue that the real power of inherent worth is in how we treat people right now, and especially how we treat people who seem to be on the fringes, on the margins, people who society tells us don't matter at all. Of course, that is a huge group, isn't it? Because society doesn't believe in inherent worth at all, I'm afraid. Society puts up all kinds of barriers to seeing ourselves as part of one family, as being the same, mattering the same. Racism is a giant way that we say people don't matter or that they matter less or that they matter only if they look and act just exactly like the people that we really think matter. Every kind of ism, actually, heterosexism and classism and ableism, they are all ways of saying that if you deviate from the norm, if you don't look like or talk like or walk like or think like or love like this standard that someone has decided is the right way, then you're somehow less, less important or less respected, less welcome. For those of us in a religious community like this one, that idea of welcome can be the most vital way we play out our belief in mattering. And I think it's also one of the places where we struggle the most. Liberal religious folks are famous, or maybe it's infamous, for talking a great talk and even walking a great walk out in the world around racism and other kinds of oppression, and then having a tricky time with the walk in their own congregations. Most ethical culture societies and most Unitarian Universalist congregations are, like this one, majority white. Most are majority highly educated. Most are majority pretty darn financially privileged when you get right down to it. We may say that everyone matters, but it's not always obvious that we want all those mattering people to be part of us. Or maybe we do want them to be part of us so long as they look pretty similar. But when they start to dress differently, or when they like different music than we do, or when they resonate with different words than we do, well, you can see the we do start to get more rigid, and the they start to feel more separate. Those divisions rear their ugly heads, followed quick on their heels by the isms. And we find ourselves back where we started, believing in the inherent worth of every person, believing that every person matters but not always doing such a great job looking like it. But I think we can do it. I think we know how to do it, and so often we, we actually do do it. I want to give a silly example of marginalization and welcome to talk about that. Have you ever arrived at a party and realized that you got the wrong memo about what to wear? Maybe you are dressed to the nines and everyone else is casual, or you're in jeans and everyone else is in business suits. Suddenly you feel both marginalized, as though you really don't fit in, and the center of attention, so obviously not right. 
And sometimes all it takes to feel right again is a kind comment from one person, someone who's able to gracefully compliment your beautiful dress or appreciate your casual feel or just welcome you for who you are and let you know that no matter what you're wearing, they're really glad you came to the party. Well, that experience isn't so different from people coming to a congregation for a first time when they look around and realize that something about them makes them not like the other people there, or at least makes them think that. Maybe it's the twine holding their jacket together like the goat lady in our pictures. Maybe it's the wheelchair they rolled in on. And our job as members of the congregation is to be that welcoming person who tells them it's okay, that we are so glad they came no matter what they look like. Actually, Wes talks about the clothing question right on our website. We have a section called What to Expect on Sunday Morning, and we answer what is one of the big questions from potential visitors. What do I wear? You'll see West members, our website says, wearing jeans and t-shirts. I'm checking to make sure this is true, yes. <laughs> business suits. I, I, I actually have not really ever seen a West member in a business suit. <laughs> <clears throat> and unique artistic creations on Sunday mornings. However, this is all on our website, the look tends toward business casual. Frankly, we're more interested in getting to know you than in what you're wearing. That's what the website says. And I think both those last things are true. We are more interested in getting to know people than in what they're wearing. And the look does tend toward business casual. The same could be said for a million things here or at any congregation. We want to really know and welcome people, and our look tends toward something, toward intellectual, or toward liberal, or toward middle class, or toward white, or toward abled. It's all right to tend toward a look, and of course there are things we tend toward that really are integral to who we are, like compassion or justice work. But I think we also want our look to be a little broader. We want, to put it very superficially, the business casual to be a little less and the unique artistic creations, the very different kinds of people, to be a little more. We want to look less like ourselves and more like the world. I do believe we want that. I believe that in our heart of hearts, in my heart of hearts, I know that what I really yearn for is not a community of people who look and act and think like me, but a community of people where some of them look and act and think like me, and some of them don't at all. Where my capacity to believe in mattering, to believe in inherent worth, to believe in loving everybody is stretched because I am asked to love people that don't seem like anyone else I've been asked to love before. Anti-racism and anti-oppression work is often called hard work, and that's true. It's hard for white folks especially, I think, because it asks us to consider our own privilege, and because we mess up at it so much, and you know, it's really uncomfortable to do things wrong. But I like to say that it is also joyful work that it is work that has as its goal a huge, giant, amazing epiphany. It is religious work for exactly the same reason that believing in inherent worth, trying to love everybody, is religious work. It's this reason, this why, that's so important. 
I have heard the why. Why do anti-oppression work? Why work so hard to believe and to act as though everyone matters? I've heard it put two different ways by people with very different theological frameworks. My guess is that one way will resonate more for most of you, but I'm going to say both of them because I found both of them to be powerful. In both cases, the question was approximately, why do anti-racism work in particular? And more broadly, why do we want a multicultural congregation or community or culture in general? So here's the first answer. Because God is love and God is so big and God is all of us. And if we are missing any single one of us in our community, if there is anyone that isn't welcomed in, isn't there, then we are missing a piece of God. And here is the second because truly knowing our own humanity is dependent on truly knowing the humanity of every other person in the world. And if we are missing a kind of person in our community, then we are missing a piece of the great picture of humanity and of our own humanity too. I liked both of those answers. I liked them so much that I remember them still years later, or I remember some version of them, or I have transformed them into the words you just heard, the answers that I turn to when I think about why I work for multiculturalism, why I work for a place where everyone matters and knows it. Diversity is such a buzzword these days, the thing everyone wants, but it can be hard to articulate exactly why we want it. That's my why. That is my religious answer and why the work is religious work. Which makes books like The Goat Lady, our religious texts, the words and stories that tell us how to live, how to see dignity in people who at first appear so different, so much on the margins, whose yard is full of goats how to act as though people matter, how to act as though each person is worthy, how to love everybody, or more accurately, how to totally fail at, but for some crazy reason still try to love everybody. I think it's a long journey to get to the part where I actually love everybody. I hope you will take it with me.